I have here a note from my producer. We have some birthdays to read out. Happy birthday. Uh... Shannon. Justin, I'm Skullcom Librarian. My pronouns are he and they. I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I'm a music library director and my pronouns are he, him. Hi, I'm Doc. Oh, guest. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Super eager to do so. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm an assistant professor at McGill University's Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies. Gender? What is this? Soviet Russia? I'm going to use that a lot. Thank you anywhere. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Great. So, Alex, you've sent me a lot of cool stuff to go over. Do you want to do your plugs up front? Because you have a lot of projects going on, and it might, might just be easier for you to tell people where to go to find everything we're going to talk about besides the show notes. For sure. Yeah. So I think the easiest place is to go to alexketchum.ca. That's my personal website. My Instagram's Dr. Alex Ketchum. My Twitter X is aketchum22, but I'm not using that as much anymore. But I think we're going to talk about some of my different projects, but most of them are embedded within my main website. And there's links to my lab and everything like that there, as well as links to my books. So we're going to talk about queer internet history. We're going to do internet culture, which I don't think we've done in a while. I feel like it just internet culture stuff has been a while. We used to do it a lot more. I can't remember what we do episodes on. There's over 116. Where should we start? You reached out to us with the LGBTQ Archives Project and asked if we could like mention it on the podcast. Do you want to tell me about that project and how it got started. For sure. So for folks listening, the LGBTQarchives.com is a directory of every LGBTQ2S plus archive in the U.S. and Canada. So it builds off of the Lavender Legacies project from the Society of American Archivists, but that hadn't been updated since 2012. And so I wanted to create an updated directory of archives that are specifically queer archives. So either community archives or sometimes if community archives entered a larger collection. And then there's another database of archives that also have large collections of queer materials. And so I had created this database or directory for my own research because I needed to contact every queer archive in the U.S. and Canada as part of another project I was doing. And I thought, why not make this publicly available so others can make use of it? Very cool. Yeah. Was there anything that you found, any sort of like trends you found in like LGBTQ2S plus archives? Like we've talked with like the Leather Archive and the way that they got founded through like basically like one or two people just donating a a ton of stuff and then a community kind of keeping it going. Like, do you see any trends with like queer archives? Yeah, I mean, in general, queer archives tend to be started by a few interested folks in their communities. A lot started out of HIV, AIDS, and folks that were passing away and people wanting to save their materials so their family went throw it away. And so that's how many of them got started. Although there's actually been a big push to create a lot of 
oral history projects that have then started to lead to people to collect more material objects as well. And then there's been more collecting on the part of kind of larger universities and some collecting from state and provincial archives now attending to that deficit that they had in their materials after so many years. But we kind of see ebbs and flows of some of the community archives their materials then being absorbed by other archives over time when the main people that were kind of driving the push to lead the community archive either burnt out or needed to pass on the responsibilities. Yeah. With the oral histories, so you're talking about collections that started as oral history projects and then started adding materials? Because I find it's usually the other way around, isn't it? You kind of have someone's junk and then you're like, well, we got to contextualize it. Yeah. So I think it's been going both ways. I think for some of the archives that started out really focused on kind of white, gay, cis male materials, which was the case for quite a few archives. They've been trying to amplify their collections by having oral histories, especially of groups that they didn't have physical materials of. But I've also started to find that there are some projects where like one or two people started to do oral histories and then people want to start giving them materials. So then they're like, oh, now we have some physical materials as well. So these are some kind of growing projects. And one thing, if people visit lgbtqarchives.com, they'll see the kind of two different lists. And for the one list that I have that's kind of other materials, there's also links to oral history projects as well. And the LGBTQ Digital Collaboratory also has a list of ongoing queer, trans, oral history projects. And I found through some of those, there's been some collecting of physical materials. But no matter what, it's always hard to kind of create these directories because it's like what counts as an LGBTQ like specific archive or, you know, like if it is part of a larger collection, some of those things are harder to delineate. Like you mentioned the leather archives and I include it because of their large collecting of queer materials, but any definitional like designations are always kind of a challenge. So I've tried to be kind of capacious in this collection because the whole point is I want people to be able to find resources that they need. And like I mentioned, the Lavender Legacies was a really great resource, but it just hadn't been updated in over a decade. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm curious with, I've seen a lot of stuff that you're doing research on, but what about your teaching? Do you get to actually talk about this stuff in your instruction? Yeah, I do. Um, So I teach a lot of queer survey courses, feminist studies survey courses. And so I really want my students to do research. So I oftentimes bring in archivists from our community. So I have some official like archival training. Um, I've been doing a certificate in digital archives management over the last few years, but I'm trained as a historian and I really value the role of archivists in our community. So I live in Montreal and we have the Archive Gay du Québec and the Archive Lesbienne du Québec. So that's the Gay Archives of Quebec and Lesbian Archives of Quebec. They're two separate organizations. And so I bring in archivists from those organizations to come and talk to my students. And then I also bring my students to those archives. And I also have them do assignments with digitized archives as well. So it's been amazing to have students work with these materials. And some of them have built exhibits and done big research projects out of it. So it's been really amazing to be able to collaborate with those local organizations. And also with the digitized, we can look, you know, from around the world. Yeah, I want to return to the exhibits thing, because I've worked in around doing digital exhibits before and it's always tricky. So I want to get back to that. Oh, I also realized something that would probably make sense because you had brought up the internet history part. 
the like big driving force behind making this directory, I mentioned it was related to my own research. And part of it was that I wanted to see how queer archives in particular were dealing with emails and how they were archiving emails, because that's right. been a really important resource for my own research on queer internet histories of printed out emails in particular. So I had sent survey to different, basically I sent to every queer archive in the US and Canada to understand how they were doing with emails. What did you find overall? Because I would I would recommend printing in a lot of situations. Yeah, so, so many of them had no policies regarding emails. It was really common in the 90s and basically up until about 2002 for archives to print out emails even sent to them. I mean, I think there's just a larger culture of printing emails, but some of them continue to print some emails. And through doing this process, a lot of them decided to also start to print more emails because many of them don't have the resources, like their community archives, they don't have the resources to have digital archives. Some of them have a little bit, but you know, what's oftentimes recommended for email archiving just isn't available to these community archives. And as a researcher from that perspective, it has been so valuable to find this printed correspondence. And so we have this kind of gap where people haven't been printing emails and they haven't been digitally archiving the emails. And so, you know, we've just lost a lot of that kind of correspondence. So I think that's going to be something that's going to be a huge challenge for researchers in the future too. Especially with the news that like Google is going to start like purging old accounts that like people aren't logging in anymore. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot that's in that as well that then will just be like lost. Yeah, definitely. And that had been an issue too earlier on with other email service providers was that there was Mm. a way smaller limit on your inbox or in your Mm. folders. And so people just deleted a lot. But like I've been able to benefit from folks who printed so many things. Um, You know, maybe they could have toned it down on how much they were printing because they would print every single reply and then it would just, you know, like every link in the chain. But, you know, it's amazing to not just see the events that folks are talking about, but also the different listservs they were on. And so even like listservs from BBS, like bulletin board systems and stuff like that. So, and because I'm interested in queer internet histories, it's just amazing to see even printed things that we might find really like boring if we got today, but it's an email to a listserv that just lists a bunch of other listservs people could join. But from finding that, I can learn so much about how people were doing information activism and organizing on the early web. Yeah, I believe we were talking about this in the Discord recently. Someone was said something about digital archiving, and I said paper is my mm-hmm. choice for the the, the medium uh, because it's easy to access and it's easy to it's shelf stable, um, mm-hmm. especially if the paper is not very acidic in its makeup. It just lasts hundreds of years, and most buildings aren't made out of wood anymore, so fire mm-hmm. is not like a huge problem. Yeah, and but, there's just so much more knowledge about how to preserve paper, then the file changes all the time and what's readable. And yeah, so it's not to say that digital digital archiving is really important, but especially with this ring correspondence, yeah, there's a lot that's going to be lost. So it was really exciting with this project to have 
some of the archives start saying like, oh, actually, we might change some of our practices and print some stuff too, or have a plan of what we're going to do. Yeah. But I think the probably more valuable thing that came out of this project for other people was the directory, because I know some people have been using it and sharing it. Because there have been quite a few projects over time where people start doing this, but then they get frustrated and stop. So there are a bunch of incomplete lists, but I just want people to be able to find more of these resources. Mm -hmm. So you talked about this being related to queer, like your your archives project being related to queer internet history, but like what brought you to doing before the LGBTQ archives project? What even got you looking into queer internet history? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so there's a few different pathways. I'll try to make this as like interesting or exciting as I can. So part of it is I run this speaker series that I totally recommend your listeners check out because all the events are free and either virtual or hybrid and we hire cart captioners so they're more accessible and we usually have uh, recordings of them on the website disruptingdisruptions.com and so a lot of the series is focused on feminist and social justice oriented responses to development of AI technologies as well as other topics around communications technologies but there's a big focus on AI and so the series really highlights the voices of scholars artists and creators that are either women, non-binary folks, trans folks, people of color, basically folks who oftentimes their voices aren't a big part of these, like they're not the highlighted voices in a lot of conversations around AI and digital technologies. And so in working in that, because I'm a historian and I'm really interested in how people organize and community build. And I I have a book on accessible scholarship. And I also have a book on feminist, lesbian, queer restaurants, which I know seems like a stretch to the tech stuff, but it's basically my interest is in how people are organizing, trying to make the world better. And like- Food is the technology. Yeah, exactly. And food is the (laughs) technology. Yeah. Thank you, Jay. So yeah. So I started working on a project about feminist responses to AI and kind of historicizing those. But And I'm still technically kind of working on that, but out of that project, because I was really interested in kind of especially the queer women's responses within that, I found the more interesting history was actually how queer folks and organizations in particular navigated the rapid changes of needing to adapt to the World Wide Web in the early 90s, because I think sometimes we take for granted that, okay, people just built a website, but There's a period of transition as internet usage became more ubiquitous in kind of the mid-90s when a lot of groups just needed to get online really quickly, but not everyone had those skills. So I've been really interested in the history of how those groups actually did the the nitty-gritty details of moving online. And there were these amazing organizations, such as Digital Queers, where their entire organization was motivated by getting modems and computers to LGBTQ organizations across the U.S., as well as internationally, so that they could operate more efficiently and be part of this like digital discourse. And I was really interested in other organizations devoted to hosting computer workshops and training other activists how to build websites in this kind of transition and how queer archives also had to deal with moving stuff online. So that's kind of the history project that I'm working on. And all of this email stuff basically has been just to do, that was like, because it was an important part of my own methods. And so basically all of that work is basically going to lead to like maybe two footnotes or three sentences of part of this larger project. But 
I, I'm really building on folks like Kate McKinney's work on information activism. I'm not sure if you've read that book. If you haven't, highly recommend it. But I'm really interested in that kind of nitty gritty of like, how did folks not just theoretically think about the internet and how the internet could be useful for queer folks, but really like, how did they actually train people to use websites? And how did organizations transition between, okay, they're doing a lot of things on the telephone, but now they also have email and how are they trying to adapt to it? Like there's some interesting things how organizations such as, I believe it was PFLAG, I want to say. I think it's PFLAG for this example, but they had just worked with digital queers in uh, around 1994 and they're really excited to have email up and running. And they told their told some of the people who follow the organization and other activists involved in an organization that just just expect about two week response time for our email inbox. Cause like it was just on such a different scale at that time. So I know that was a long answer, but there's like a few different ways that I got into this project. I'm finding the two week response for emails really funny because bring I'm it one back. Of those, yeah. Like <laughs> your email did not find me well, please. It takes me three weeks to respond to a text message, like bring it back. Slow communication. Yeah, for sure. Stop treating email like instant message. And just for all of that, I think we've just really taken for granted that people just acquire these skills. I'm using we maybe too like broadly, but I do think that it's one of those histories that it was such a short time period of how fast organizations had to adapt, but that it was expected of them without training or funding or support and how different queer activist groups, like cyber activist groups were like, okay, well, let's get people these skills. And it's also at a time when there's a lot of changes within HIV and AIDS activism. And so there's also, McKinney talks about this a little bit, but Critical Path was another really important organization. I don't know if you've heard of Critical Path, but they're located in the Philadelphia area. And basically, they're printing out every single resource that they could find on HIV AIDS. They had newsletter, they had like publications on BBS systems, as well as when the World Wide Web became available. And they served as an information resource where people from all over the US would call in. And so there are these really important information sharing projects around HIV AIDS, as well as other queer resources. And all of this, these guidebooks that were built up around it and people used to also create because search engines weren't like really useful they would create physical guidebooks that they would print out as well so there's things like lesbian and gay guide to the internet and there are these 400 page thick books i think i've seen that one actually a lot of these guidebooks got thrown away and while some do exist in queer archives you can find a couple of editions and i've been able to track some down from used bookstores Mostly the Library of Congress has some pretty complete collections, so I was able to visit and see them. And it's pretty exciting to see the different trends with them too. And they'd have a CD-ROM that you could put into your computer and then click to the links because you couldn't find them through web browsers. So it's really interesting that during this, it was a pretty short time period, but there's all these different physical media to speak to the digital world at the time. So those have been some of the really fun resources to dig into with this project. Yeah, I like the idea of having having like software carpentries for queers like everyone just needs to learn how to use email in the 90s mm-hmm. i like i like that idea 
And then I thought it was something I was like, when did we talk about like the queer helpline? And I realized we didn't. It was just me and Jay read a book about poppers and that oh, nice. came up a lot. <laughs> yes, because the person who wrote that book has a you podcast on on Switchboard on the um the helpline in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Adam Smith. Yeah. Yeah, Adam Smith, because he he's part of that amazing podcast, The Log Books, based off of the log books of the Bishop's Gate Institute. Were there any groups like that that you ran across that were like doing phone line help and then had to go online? Yeah. So that's actually going to be one of the chapters of the book. So I actually, because I love that podcast so much, I went to the Bishopsgate Institute this summer in London and read through the logbooks uh, to see all the different entries around when they're transitioning online because that podcast had a quick episode. So I reached out to Adam and his co-host about it and they're like, oh, well, we saw more stuff, but we couldn't talk about it. So I spent a few days reading through every logbook. But there were other organizations. So there was one in Toronto whose official name I can't think off the top of my head what it was called. But they were navigating the change that Switchboard Leader went through too of having the phone line, but also running like an instant messenger chat too for queer youth. And Hannah Zeven also has this book about long distance therapeutic technologies and it's called the distance cure. And in it, she talks about this queer hotline called call Bruce. And there's like a short mention of this, but there's actually, you can find small traces in a bunch of different queer archives about the phone lines and then looking when they first introduce email addresses. So it's something that I've been tracing is like when they start to have it where people can write them by email and then later when they introduce instant messenger and and, you know, the the helpline that Adam Smith was talking about in the logbooks, Switchboard, it still exists today. And they offer phone, instant messenger, and email still today. So it's like a trifecta. So it's kind of like an ongoing thing where for a lot of these organizations, they didn't completely drop the phone line. They just added more services. That's Ooh. so cool. I've been thinking about like things like Queer Switchboard and, and stuff like that a lot lately because I do a lot of volunteer work at, a, at like a radical bookstore at an info shop. And just like thinking about like spaces that are designed for like specific types of information seeking and like they're like, hey, I need this type of resource that isn't covered by traditional modes of information sharing. This is where I can come to that. So it's just like I've been just like really into like that as a concept. Yeah, for sure. So, I, w- yeah. I was thinking no, about that. When you did the recent episode talking about your work and about that and as like that being another form of information activism and the other spaces that you had mentioned too of like Red Emma's and stuff like that of having these different resources and all using different names, but like how much that is like the vital work of activism is making information available and having to share it again and again and finding different ways to make that more accessible through zines or websites or, you know, like other ways of communicating, having workshops. And so that's the other thing that kind of ties together some of my projects, like the project on feminist restaurants. I talk a lot about how those spaces were places where there was that community building, but there was also information sharing and training and so forth. And so I think that's something that just continually is of interest in my work, right? Whether it's in a cafe in the 1970s or if it's at a computer resource center in the 1990s, or even one of the groups that I talk about in this project is Dyke TV, which was a lesbian produced television show on public access, like television networks that started in New York City, but they were distributed across the US, but also internationally. 
and they would host workshops first teaching other lesbians or like queer women how to create TV shows and like films and video clips. But then they also later had media workshops as well, and like how to use the internet and stuff like that. I think that is a part of activism that isn't oftentimes seen as like the sexy activism. But I think it's like what sustains the movement and makes it that people can continue to do their work and bring people in. Yeah, especially if we uh, th- there's that tweet going around today or whatever about uh, how that there was a year long study about how Google searches have gotten like progressively worse and worse and worse. And it's like, one, we've been saying that for yeah. years in this profession. But like thinking about like these kinds of like specifically intentional activist information sharing spaces and services, how critical these are, like even mm-hmm. today, like they they might feel kind of like retro or old school, but it's like when the other modes of information sharing that we have are either like Google, you know, mm-hmm. or places like Elsevier or something mm-hmm. like these like data brokers, basically, it's like I'd, I'd rather like call some like crust punk and ask them where things are, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's still so much person to person even today. Like there, I think there was a lot of disregard for how important that work was by some people when there was the phrase, just Google it. But if you don't know the search terms that you need or certain vocabulary, your Google search isn't going to be very good. Not to mention the way that Google is like specific for you and your results will be different, all of that stuff. And now it's just like not working very well. And all, all the different issues, right, of how sites that basically are paying for higher search engine optimization, all of that. But I think, yeah, this is an ongoing effort and we're seeing that more and more today. And also with kind of the collapse of certain social media platforms too, just search not working very well. I think we're going to see maybe a bit more back to the physical material. And there's also, I think, some generational shifts too, where people are starting to like really enjoy the tangible as well. So yeah, I've been writing a lot of notes. I like the idea of Dyke TV because it's like the equivalent now would be like the Alice Avizandum Institute for online posting, just like learning how to post good is very funny. I was also, I just also wrote down Tumblr and Discord and how people in like 15 years are going to be nostalgic for old Discord and how they also so much data is being lost in Discord because people are treating it as a repository of information and then servers just go away and stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was reminding me of uh, the disc, like people are going to be nostalgic for it but also the information's not stable Mm -hmm. and like if you get kicked even temporarily from a discord server you lose your own access to it so like you don't see what happened in the past on it so if you get like timed out or whatever at any point you can lose your own Mm -hmm. access so if you're like a younger person like all the conversations you had can just be wiped but it did remind me that one post that was like discord is like having to join a polycule to use the library Which Not I feel wrong. like I'm in several like I'm in several discords that are just a polycule. Um, <laughs> and then I'm like there, like, hello. <laughs> I like the thing this is nominally about. Everyone else in here is just fucking. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, we we all met on Tumblr, so I mean, like, we've got no room to like talk because, yeah. like, if you want to talk about like a website with no preservation, no search function, and uh, no future, at least um, now, like, posts by like deleted users still show up, and it will just have deleted after their username. So at least like posts don't really disappear as much on Tumblr, uh, even if the user deletes. Hmm? 
Except oh, all the yeah. porn that got wiped. Like a lot yeah. of stuff just got wiped. RIP porn. So there's a lot of stuff that was like not even prurient, like like nudes and stuff that people were just sharing, you know, transition mm-hmm. photos, that kind of shit are just, you know, gone. And so like there it feels like I think that's why it feels like Tumblr's dead, because like a lot of the old posts are actually just gone because like the user was deleted or something when they really cracked down on on porn. Yeah. And also and I mean- Tumblr search sucks. <laughs> So you can't find anything anyway. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this again kind of speaks to the value of a lot of these like things that have been printed out in archives. Like people aren't printing out their Tumblr posts usually and they're not printing out their Instagram posts. I mean, one of the things, because we were maybe going to talk about some of the exhibits because I've made a few digital exhibits and they're you know, built on Airtable. <laughs> they're, they're not really built for long-term accessibility for too much or, you know, like, I don't know how, long-term sustainability but I've done a lot of like for the from tech wizard to cyber witch exhibit. I just screenshot I love like this a one lot so much of of the internet just to like and a lot of its old Tumblr Tumblr posts with people doing cyber spells on Tumblr using emojis, mm-hmm. doing these emoji spells and stuff. But you know, like to charge your blog to cast. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, like, there's a lot of stuff, like, yeah, people are screenshotting some stuff, but, you know, how many people are going to keep these files organized and save them? And so we'll see, but yeah. <laughs> or that woman who was digging up human bones. Oh, the human bones. Remember thing. the bug kitty on Tumblr? Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Or spell casting. Yeah, I like I like the Airtable that's not giving. Yeah, 40 Years of Magic on the web. There's a lot of Buffy stuff. So we have yeah. friends who do Buffy podcasts. And so I think they're really going to like this. Awesome. You already missed the episodes where it's like really heavy Willow stuff being a techno pig. And they're in like season five now. But I don't know. Maybe you should go on their podcast too. Nice. I mean, I, I love Buffy. <laughs> have a buffy tattoo and yeah I wrote, oh yeah they gotta have you on <laughs> you know, I, had a, I wrote an article recently about queer feminist buffy podcasts yeah so but yeah i mean i this this exhibit was in part kind of speaking to a lot of like gender stuff and how we talk about the web but also it came out of just i really enjoy that season one episode where there's a demon that is scanned into the internet and mm. so that kind of started and this you know jenny calendar's line about being a techno pagan and so yeah it kind of started out as like a side interest but it's been really interesting to see how much of the discourse around ai really just reflects these really magical thinking principles you know <laughs> so i think we can see this kind of ongoing pattern basically since early web like prior to the World Wide web to today with ai technologies and how a lot of the discussion is really about it being basically magic and then there's some interesting projects where people have created grimoires using ai and also how people have tried to like build that into their spell casting and there's all these really fun guides for witches of how to use computers to do part of their spells so they're like if you don't have sage in your house you can just pull up a jpeg of sage like stuff like that so you wouldn't download a sage yeah (laughs) so i'm gonna write like on a picture of sage and get your ass (laughs) 
they get into <laughs> NFTs where they're NFT witches. They're like, I'm putting my spells on the blockchain. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me. I didn't find that directly, but there was some interesting, it's not technically fanfic, but like amateur writing of witches talking about like kind of related stuff yeah, and like kind of self-published. Forum role playing. Exactly. Yeah. So Every forum turns into role play eventually. Yeah. And the whole like emoji spell thing, there's just a period of time where kind of every magazine, like like traditionally like it marketed as like women's magazines or girls' magazines had an article about emoji spells and casting mm. through emojis. So yeah, it was kind of a trend for a while. I bought a spell or something on Tumblr one time for shits and giggles, like from a, a witch lady on Tumblr. It was fun. Just gotta do that every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all all the worlds of forum role play. I think there was a Shakespeare line. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't get that joke out earlier, but it was just stuck in my head and I couldn't get it out. Yeah. I'm looking at the attachment on the emoji smells Tumblr and please be functional Wi-Fi like emoji spell and then police related emoji spells. Like those two things next to each other really say a lot about Tumblr, I, I think. And all this stuff kind of around Trump's first election too, oh, like all the hexing of Trump through emoji spells and also um, coming together online to hex Trump. That was a big phenomenon. It's about as useful as all the petitions. <laughs> I mean, oh, that's so sad. What are petitions if not also magical thinking? You know, like this change.org petition. I, I saw so many like teenagers like doing their first like activism. I was like, that's cute. Proud of them. Yeah. This will change the world by a gun. <laughs> Justin. <laughs> what? <laughs> not wrong. Why don't, I guess we can't talk about the book proposal, can we? I mean, we kind of talked about it already with the the queer internet stuff, but what we we could talk about is like why I put all these projects online for folks because that could be a way to tie into kind of why I think public scholarship is important and different forms of communicating information. Yeah, public scholarship, does that tie into like building digital exhibits? Yeah. Does that tie into your teaching? Yeah, so with a lot of these projects I try to make I try to make them publicly available in a variety of ways so I do the things that I'm expected to do as scholar in terms of like writing journal articles and writing books but I always make sure that there's an open access version of everything I write with the articles and then I made both my books that are out ingredients for revolution and engage in public scholarship available open access but I also usually build a website that goes with it that has a lot of that information available for folks. There's oftentimes a podcast that I make affiliated with it with transcripts. And then I oftentimes make zines or exhibits that kind of are also related to it because I want people to be able to have access to this information in ways that are potentially interesting for them. I say potentially because who knows if anyone is going to be interested in what I'm working on. But I'm hoping that people are able to access this stuff without paywalls. And it's, you know, just putting things up with open access, it doesn't mean it's accessible because if it uses jargon and stuff like that. So I want it to be interesting and something that someone can engage with at different levels. And so this has been something that I've been really committed to with all my scholarship and in my teaching. And because a lot of folks don't have the time to go to university or the resources or interest, or they went to university and couldn't take courses in feminist studies, but might be interested in it. During the pandemic, because I didn't want my students to have to spend hours and hours on Zoom where they might just get bored or it just, it was a lot to be on Zoom all the time. 
So I taught my intro course via podcast episodes with transcripts and then to intro feminist and social justice studies. And then I have made the course available to the public for free. And it's available on all major podcasting apps like, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the places you can find podcasts basically and the transcripts available so people can essentially take the course. I mean, they don't get credit for it, but take an intro feminist studies course. So yeah, I think it's just something that I really care about and want to encourage other scholars to do. I really hate the mentality in academia of trying to keep knowledge inaccessible. And I really, like a lot of our work is funded by taxpayers. A lot of my grants come from that kind of funding. I just, even if that weren't the case, I just want there not to be these kinds of barriers, especially, you know, I work on queer history, feminist history, histories of marginalized communities that I come from. And I also just want people in those communities to have access to their histories that a lot of folks didn't get to have access to in their other studies, you know, in high school or earlier. So yeah, so it's just something that's really important to me. And a lot of that work started early on with my feminist food and queer food work. Yeah. Before you move on to the food waste stuff, I actually want to talk about open access and queer history because and just queer scholarship in general, because this is one of the like most effective, I think, arguments against open access is retaliation and lack of institutional support for queer scholars. So there are definitely people who do not want their work open access and they just only want other scholars to see it because if you get on wokeprofessors.biz, your institution doesn't have a policy to like say these people are nut jobs. They'll go, oh, well, you know, we're a intellectual community who cares about hearing all sides. And rather than like, these are like fuck asses and like, who cares about them? Yeah, for sure. So I actually ran a study in 2020. I talk about this in my book, Engage in Public Scholarship. I also have like a medium post about it. But so my research team and I contacted every Canadian university and asked them what their policies were if their scholars were being trolled or doxxed. And with the exception of one university, none of them had any policies in place. None of them had anything to officially support their scholars or provide their scholars with training. And of course, like as you're basically talking about, marginalized scholars are oftentimes the ones who are facing this trolling, doxing, and harassment. And so out of that work, I also was able to contact some folks at UMass Amherst that actually does have a policy. So about like ways that universities could support their scholars. A few of the universities were interested in taking some of this work on and some just didn't care. So I think there definitely is an issue when universities are encouraging their scholars to make their work publicly available and aren't supporting them in case there is backlash. So that is a really important component of this. But I think like a lot of times that backlash comes actually through people's social media engagement and other kinds of like public engagement, I think more than their open access articles. While while there are people who target folks and are like looking at their journal articles that might be made open access, it's oftentimes more in the public engagement stuff with their like stuff on the media or on social media where it really comes from. I also think that like everybody is able to make decisions about how they want to showcase their scholarship, but just 
just for me, my work is grounded in community work. And so I need to make sure that the community I'm working with and part of can get that. Like I have had death threats in the past, but and but it hasn't really been as much as I would actually think I would get. So I think so. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. The very fact that you had to say those sentences aloud, though, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, for sure. I think some of the bigger things, though, too, are that universities need to have like scholars need to know that their deans are going to support them or I mean, most scholars that are doing this work are precariously employed. So I'm now tenure track after many years of not being tenure track. It's new this year for me to be tenure track. I was in a non-tenure track position for the last five years before. And I also think that a few universities are going to make these policies. It needs to be for everyone. They're grad students, they're adjuncts, they're like non-tenure track folks, they're tenure track folks, they're postdocs, all of that. But it hasn't been like, it's not, it's not what I thought it would be or how bad I would ever think think it would be. But there are certain times I've made decisions not to go on certain like radio shows or TV shows because of the potential backlash. But I I haven't really found trolls to like go that would go through my academic articles. So I think it would require a bit more time than they'd want to put into it. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the bigger things too that I think is a really fair thing is talking about some of the projects, if it's like maybe going to give too much attention to like some of like people's research subjects or the folks that they're working with. If like a if something went viral, you know, people might have participated in a research study thinking like, oh, 10 scholars will read this and so forth. But I'm really transparent with the people that I work with, like how I'm going to share things. You know, you can do things like changing names. There's amazing work by Mimi Onuha who has this project called Missing Data Sets. I don't know if you know her work. She's this amazing artist. And a big part of her work is this project is about like what data hasn't been collected and how is that like hurting certain mar- marginalized communities. But she also has work showing what data sets should we not collect because this data could actually hurt people, right? If you're collecting data and perhaps ICE might get a hold of it and then it'll hurt migrant workers or undocumented folks, right? And so I think that there are also responsibilities that scholars have to not always share things or release data, but for at least the topics that I'm working on, the communities that I'm working with aren't being hurt. And many of the people want their stories to be told because they've been underrepresented and they want other folks to know these histories and learn from these histories. So I'm not saying that every single thing ever has to be open. And I'm also not saying that there's not value in having journal articles. (laughs) But I do think that there's like other ways that we can share knowledge. And I find it really disheartening that a lot of people in academia don't see the value in doing that work and supporting that work and valuing it equally to that peer-reviewed journal article, which I really appreciated your rant the other day in the other episode about journal articles. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I have to think about them too much. Sadie? Oh, I was just going to say, that's a fairly frequent podcast topic is mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> ranting about journal articles and all the bullshit that goes along with that. And Sadie's just like living the the high life, like in public library IT, not even giving a fuck about all of me and Justin's <laughs> academic nonsense. Yes, that's is true. But like, the <laughs> you just let us get our yayas out. And <laughs> I mean, I find it interesting. But yeah, no, like thinking about the like, well, as we were talking about earlier, like the email thing. 
thinking about mm-hmm. email archiving, I'm like, that just makes my brain go down a whole different track that, you know, could run parallel. So yeah, there was a local queer project that some faculty wanted to do and make it open access. And uh, they had brought someone in as well. And they wanted to make like an edited volume of like interviews and stuff with people locally, and it would be published at our university. So it'd all be very hyper local. And mm-hmm. I remember giving them like the rundown on this, like, okay, but identification, are we going to de-identify? Are we going to anonymize? Do you have support from your boss? Like, you know, your mm-hmm. department, how do you feel? How's your relationship with your boss? And I just remembered about that project because uh, I, I never followed up on it. But now I kind of want to see if they what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of times research ethics boards like REB or IRB haven't really caught up to a lot of like digital stuff too. And like sharing stuff online and what that means. The Association of Internet Researchers, the AOIR, has their 3.0 guidelines that kind of speaks to some of these things. And there's also a really great piece by Moya Bailey about how to share this work and do some of this work, especially with Black trans communities. And that piece was published, Open Access in Digital Humanities Quarterly, a few years ago. Folks might be interested in that one. Nice. Okay, so we'll wrap it up with the foodways. So how did, I interrupted you earlier as you were about to segue, but going back to your your feminist restaurant project and historical cooking, I mean, how did that all get going? Yeah, for sure. So some of the ways that I first started getting into to doing a lot of public scholarship work while I was always interested in kind of sharing what I was learning in school and with my own research later on. In 2013, I co-founded this blog with a few other students at the time called the Historical Cooking Project. The blog still exists today. And so what we were doing was we were looking at old cookbooks, we were cooking through the recipes and writing quick blog posts about it. But I was finding that was a space where I was able to actually interact with other folks about some of the research I was doing in a fun way. And so that inspired me that when I was starting my doctoral work on the history of feminist restaurants, cafes and coffee houses in the US and Canada, which I mentioned were mostly founded by lesbians and women who today might identify as queer women, or or they use different labels for themselves, but they're pretty queer spaces. I started to just early on list the spaces I was finding in, I was making basically a directory because no one had ever created a directory of these spaces or studied them. And so I'd just find names of these spaces within periodicals in their advertisement sections or in old lesbian travel guides and stuff like that. So I wanted to create a website so I could share it with folks and say like, hey, am I missing any place? Let me know. And so that then meant that I kept adding to the project and putting all of my writing about the topics on that website. And, you know, on that website, thefeministrestaurantproject.com, there's also a link to open access version of my book, Ingredients for Revolution, as well as I made a podcast related to the book too. So I just like that kind of got me into this path of always creating websites that accompanied the the projects I was doing. And I'm very aware that digital humanities projects oftentimes run out of money and funding and support. But right now I maintain about like around 10 different websites, which sounds wild, but I built them on the blogger base, so I'm not paying web hosting fees. I just renewed the domain names from time to time. 
And yeah, again, it's not going to be necessarily sustainable for like even 20 years from now, maybe. But I do think that's kind of what started my interest and what I'm building on today. And even though I'm doing a lot more of the tech stuff now, in part because my interests have shifted, but also because I can get grants for my tech projects a lot easier than food projects because granting bodies really love tech stuff in a way they don't seem to care about food. I'm still doing queer food stuff. And so I'm co-organizing the Queer Food Conference, which is happening in Boston this April. Uh, So there's the physical conference, but I think we're sold out now for the 100 people. But we also have unlimited amount of people who can participate virtually because it's going to be a hybrid conference for accessibility for a variety of folks, right? People with caregiving responsibilities, people who don't want to travel, can't travel, um, people with different disabilities. So yeah, that conference, and we kept a really low registration fee. So yeah, I hope folks who are interested in queer food participate. So yeah. I wish I'd known earlier. I might actually be in town around then. Oh, well. Well, we might have like some other like kind of side events as well. So yeah, it's April 27th and 28th, but the website for that is queerfoodconference.com. I love a domain name that is essentially the thing. So historical cooking project, the feminist restaurant project, queer food conference, you know, everything is like, it is the name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what they tell you to do with links and and accessible web design anyway, right? So you're just like removing even one more barrier to translate link to to what it is Mm -hmm. yeah sure seo was there anything else you want to mention before we go no just that it's been great to be on this podcast i'm a huge fan i do i really listen to like pretty much all of your episodes and so yeah thanks for letting me be on yeah i hope this was okay for y'all Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, it always sounds better after every episode. We're like, "Uh, did that go good? And then it comes out great. (laughs) Seriously. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every yeah. episode, I'm like, that was dog shit. And then it's like the best one we've ever done <laughs> every single time. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed the podcast. And yeah, it's been, it's been great. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>